Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. And yes, I'm adrift on an ocean of information, so I'd better get dredging, because today's subject is armed merchantmen, skullduggery and subterfuge, nautical wolves in sheep's clothing. Jamie recorded this episode before news broke of a Russian ghost fleet of spy and sabotage vessels in the North Atlantic, mounting clandestine operations to monitor and potentially disrupt European communications and energy infrastructure. And I'm talking about wolves and sheep's clothing because the subject is really about merchant ships, auxiliary vessels that are used by navies and militaries around the world for all sorts of operations, clandestine, covert, overt, and downright unpleasant. And there's so many examples of spy ships and military incursions using merchant ships. And it goes back a long way. Some of you might have seen the Bond film, For Your Eyes Only, And although it's fiction, it gives an idea of some of the areas in which this kind of subterfuge is applicable. Remember the clandestine spy trawler, St George, the British spy trawler. It hauls in a mine in its fishing nets and uh, is sunk. And the device that goes down with it is a thing called ATAC that Bond later has to retrieve. It's the automatic targeting attack communicator, ridiculous acronym. And why would a spy trawler have a device in the Ionian Sea for communicating with British ballistic missile submarines? But that's not the point. The point is that ships have been used for all sorts of activities around the world, whether it's auxiliary general intelligence spy trawlers of the Soviet Union to the spy ships that we send out around the world to this day. And you look at these operations that have gone on. I mean, in 1874, there was a sealing ship was launched and it could cut through the ice of the Arctic. And so it went on many operations. It was eventually acquired by the US Navy. It had an 88-year career, absolutely extraordinary. And this was the revenue cutter bear. And the bear did extraordinary things because by the time of the Second World War, it had been used in the First and Second World Wars for reconnaissance and surveillance in Arctic waters. But it, it even captured the Norwegian trawler being used by the Germans to spy, the Bucko. And so that was a ship that had an immensely long career in surveillance. And it was built in the 19th century. Then you can go on to the uh, Glomar Explorer, Project Azorian, in which the Howard Hughes built ship with this giant grab claw picked up part of the sunken Soviet submarine K129 in the Pacific. And you can talk about the the bolt cutter that was on the hull on the front of the UK submarine, the Royal Navy submarine, HMS Conqueror, in late 1982 when it cut the toad-array sonar of a Polish-flagged Soviet spy trawler in the Atlantic. It goes on all the time and it goes on everywhere. And if you look back in history, these false flag operations 
have always gone on. If you are a pirate ship or a privateer and you want to attack a commercial ship, a ship carrying cargo or gold, and everything is done by sail and you have to overhaul, you have to tack onto the target, the last thing you want to do is give the game away too early. So, of course, you're going to pretend to be something else. Um, Francis Drake did this when he hauled barrels behind his privateer vessel to slow it down, to make it look like a heavily laden uh, cargo ship, transport ship, that would draw others to it like a magnet, so you could then cut the barrels and turn on them. You look at the Corsairs and the Barbary pirates off the north coast of Africa, they often use Zebex that had a low seaboard uh, to float in, to approach unseen uh, vessels uh, operating in the Mediterranean. And they often try to appear to look like normal fishing vessels. They also had ships called Tartans that carried a crew of about 60 and they actually had quite a high seaboard and a high prow, which allowed them to throw smoke pots and grenades and arquebus fire and sakir anti-personnel cannon shot down onto their victims and allowed them to swing across more easily onto uh, vessels they wanted to capture. So, again, whether it was the pirates or the corsairs, people have always used civilian ships, civilian vessels, often fishing vessels, to mask their approach and mask their real purpose. You move on to the Second World War, you have people like Anders Lassen of the Special Boat Squadron operating in the Aegean and the Mediterranean uh, and landing uh, from his Greek fishing kite to attack German positions or kidnap German officers or land food to starving Greek island populations. When he was killed at Lake Kamakio uh, in 1945, where he won his uh, posthumous Victoria Cross, uh, he was dressed as a seaman because that's what he wanted to appear to be. You know, it's whether you're in disguise, whether the ship's in disguise, it's all part of the process. And apart from these attacking ships, apart from using uh, vessels to uh, sneak in amongst the enemy, you also have spy ships. Walsingham, the famous uh, English spy master of the Elizabethan age, he was using sailing vessels to spy on the Spanish Armada off the Portuguese coast uh, right up to the First and Second World Wars. British intelligence were using trawlers to land agents around the Baltics. In fact, Sidney Riley, ace of spies, was landed in 1918 and later on uh, in Soviet Russia to help the white Russians fight the Bolshevik revolution. So spy trawlers have always been used, have always been used to ferry agents or to watch the enemy. And that goes all the way through history. But perhaps the point at which merchant ships really came into their own, really started to be seen in, in a military capacity, to be seen as having a, a, a really significant role, was the Q-ship of the First World War. And of course, 
the Navy had been involved in operations like this before. Way back in the early 18th century, HMS Swallow had been going around the Mediterranean posing as a, as a civilian ship in order to attack pirates. But come the First World War, you got Q-ships named after Queenstown, the base in, in Ireland from which they sailed. And there's always been debate about how effective they were. I mean, after all, there were about 200 of them. They were involved in about 150 incidents to attack U-boats. And the Navy looked on them as being really important because depth charge technology was in its infancy and German submarines, German U-boats, had to surface in order to use their deck gun to sink ships. Torpedo technology was really in its infancy and they were very expensive. So much easier, much better to surface and sink the vessel. And so if the Q-ships could pose as civilian ships, attract the U-boats to the surface, then those U-boats could be attacked. And through the First World War, only about 14 uh, German U-boats were actually sunk by these Q-ships. And they started quite well. I mean, in June 1915, you got the Taranaki, the first instant of a Q-ship, uh, posing as a civilian vessel uh, that had boarded guns, disguised guns. You had that in concert with a British submarine knocking out a German U-boat, U-40. The same year, you had the first Q-boat operating alone. That was called the Prince Charles, and it sank uh, U-36. Um, pity that Prince Charles didn't sink a ship called the Megan. That would have been ironic. But these ships sort of started to gain traction, started to gain momentum, and, and were seen as being important. And their sort of personalities changed, their, their configurations changed. They had sort of panic crews on board that were seen by the U-boat. You know, if they challenged the ship, they, they were seen to be getting into lifeboats. They were seen to um, carry the ship's mascots, stuffed parrots and things like that, you know, into the, into the lifeboats with them. These were the panic parties. And you know, quite often on, on, on sort of liners, because Q-ships included liners and trawlers and sailing ships and everything else, you name it, um, you know, they, they, they had to be convincing. They, they had to, to really put it on. The, the ruse had to work. Uh, a bit Monty Python, of course. And it reminds me, actually, years later of a special forces friend of mine who had to put a Special Forces team on board a British liner uh, because there was a fear of a terrorist attack. And the Special Forces guys disguised themselves as passengers, as normal security guys in jackets, but also as the entertainment staff. And the only thing that was wrong was that they weren't convincing as entertainment staff because they couldn't dance, they couldn't sing, and they certainly weren't camp enough. Uh, that, that, that's the official report. But... These crews on the Q-ships, they, they really had to act. They really had to play their part. And so, you know, come the Inverlion 
uh, incident, you know, this was a ship off Great Yarmouth, who it was a it was actually a, a sailing ship. It was a sailing trawler. It didn't have any power plant at all. It only had a forty-seven millimeter gun, disguised, of course, and that managed to sink uh, a German submarine called UB four. That was in August nineteen fifteen. And the captain did try and find the crew, but the the submarine just sank with all hands. But the the incident that really changed everything for the Q-ships was really the Barralong incident, again in August 1915, because here the Barralong attacked a German U-boat. It was U-27. That submarine was going to attack a freighter called the Nicosian, and the Barralong went in for the kill, and it sank the U-27, and there were about a dozen survivors. The captain of the Barralong was Captain Godfrey Herbert, who ended up being essentially a war criminal because he machine-gunned those survivors, those German survivors, in the water and then sent a boat over to the Nicosian to see if he could kill any who had made it to the Nicosian. So it was a terrible incident. And it was really after that that the Imperial German Navy decided to abandon all sort of usual protocols and just sink ships, not challenge them, not allow the crews to get off and just go for it. And that was really the end of the usefulness, the utility of the Q-ship, because all gloves were off after that. And frankly, after the sinking of the Lusitania anyway, I think all gloves were off. And it became total war, and and the U-boat menace became more and more pronounced, more insidious and more unpleasant. It was a very cruel battle. Um, And later on, come the Second World War, there was no need for Q-ships because uh, torpedoes were being used, depth charges were being used. Uh, U-boats didn't really have to surface. And also you had the convoy system being introduced. So that lure, that, that ruse of the Q-ship sort of died out. But that takes us really to the next stage of what merchant ships, civilian vessels or seemingly civilian vessels were used for. Because in the First World War, uh, you started getting the merchant raider, the well-armed merchant raider. And the Germans really started this. It was a way of putting pressure on the Royal Navy that was essentially larger than the Imperial German Navy. So having civilian ships raiding, cutting off supplies, attacking the the interests of the British Empire and its far-flung possessions, it was very useful to have an armed merchant fleet doing the job for you. So you could actually keep your naval assets, your big guns in the North Atlantic ready to face uh, the large guns of the Royal Navy fleet. You started getting sort of liners, for example, converted liners, um, such as the Kaiser Wilhelm der Grosser or its sister ship, the Crown Prince Wilhelm. And 
liners were useful, but the trouble is it was very difficult to disguise them. With cargo ships, you could always change the look of them. I mean, if you take, for example, the Atlantis in the Second World War, the German raider, she had 26 different silhouettes and disguises. And, and this was always changing. I mean, this was always useful in war to change the elevation of the mast, to change the silhouette, the look of the funnels. If you take the Campbelltown raid, for example, on Saint-Nazaire, Operation Chariot in the Second World War in 1942. There was uh, the Campbelltown, HMS Campbelltown. She was a former US destroyer, but they ended up changing her silhouette to make her look like a German warship. So again, this has always gone on, but it's far harder to do with a liner. So with the First World War, the Kaiser Wilhelm der Grosse and the Crown Prince Wilhelm they were pretty successful. I mean, the de Grosser sank two other ships, merchant ships. The crown prince, Wilhelm, did much better. I mean, she actually sank uh, 15 vessels and she went down to operate off the east coast of Brazil. And she managed to take out sort of 10 British vessels, four French vessels, a Norwegian vessel. And so, yeah, she, she, was, a, she was a good marauder. But there were better ones. There was a third one in the First World War called the Wolf, or the Wolf. And um, the Wolf managed to go and lay mines um, out in the Indian Ocean and raid ships and, and do damage. She sank about 14 um, allied merchant ships in the southern oceans. But the most successful one of the First World War uh, on the German side was actually the Merva or the Seagull. And she was the most successful merchant raider, uh, another car converted cargo ship, essentially. And she managed to sink 40 allied ships uh, in the Great War. She was retired from service. She, she ended up with two, probably too great a profile. So she survived. She ended up uh, being given to the Brits after the war, after the Treaty of Versailles, and working as a cargo ship carrying produce and fruit. So talk about uh, uh, going back from uh, from a soared into a plowshare, <laughs> she found a new application. Of course, those two cruise liners, uh, the Kaiser Wilhelm de Grosser and the Crown Prince Wilhelm, both of those were basically captured by the Allies um, sort of fairly early on in the war and di didn't have any other part to play. Uh, they ran out of supplies and, and were cornered. But come the Second World War, that's when German ships really came into their own, these German merchant raiders, these civilian ships. But of course, they were up against Bletchley Park and the breaking of the Enigma Code. And that's really what did for them in the end. But there were some fantastic vessels, some extraordinary vessels and some extraordinary fights that were involved. Uh, the, the, one of the most famous, of course, was the Atlantis. She had been... Uh, German cargo vessel converted in 1937. She, she had originally been called the uh, Goldenfeld. And she was converted, given heavy guns, 
and off she went to raid. She had an extraordinary adventure. She sailed 100,000 miles. Uh, she sank 144,000 tons of Allied shipping. She operated mostly in the Southern Oceans. And, and they were multi-role. They dropped mines. They attacked merchant ships. Um, they refueled U-boats. And Atlantis, uh, the, the Allies caught up with her, and she was sunk uh, by a Royal Navy ship, HMS Devonshire, in 1941, when she had been sent to refuel U-boats, and she was cornered. But again, this extraordinary vessel that had 26 different disguises uh, had an amazing impact. And this is the thing, both about Q-ships and about merchant raiders. They could often leave port looking like one ship with a certain name and arrive at another port with a completely different look and a totally different name. And with the crews wearing different outfits, uh, looking as though they belonged to different navies or different merchant fleets around the world. So that was at Atlantis. And, and you know, she, she did very well. She sank 22 um, Allied ships. So she, she had, a, she had a, a good war or an initial part of the war until she was sunk. The next ship was possibly the most successful, indeed was the most successful merchant raider of the Second World War. And she was called the Penguin, I don't need to do the translation for that. But she had an extraordinary career. She, she started as a cargo ship as well, a freighter uh, known as the Candlefelt. She was converted, was given heavy armament. And one of her great successes was actually capturing the Norwegian whaling fleet down in the Antarctic. And that was sort of 11 whalers, three factory ships. In fact, she sent most of that fleet that she had captured uh, back to Bordeaux with the skeleton crews. One of them she, she retained and turned into a subsidiary vessel, a sister ship. So there was this whaler renamed the Adjutant, and she was sent off to lay mines off New Zealand. So there was always this retasking, always this reapplication of the technology and the vessels to, to other conflict areas, other zones, and with different duties. But the Penguin, in the end, was sunk by HMS Cornwall, a British cruiser, Royal Navy cruiser. And unfortunately for the crew of the Penguin and the 200 uh, survivors of other ships that she had taken on board, the mines on board her exploded and well over 500 uh, men on board were killed. That was the end of the Penguin. And again, that was in 1941. There was another famous German raider, and she was called the Cormoran. She was huge. She was 540 feet long. And she didn't have the same amount of kills as the Penguin. I mean, the Penguin had uh, destroyed 136,000 tonnes of Allied shipping. Not as much in terms of tonnage at the Atlantis, but she did sink more ships. She sank 28 uh, she accounted for 28 Allied ships. But the Cormoran was vast, and she sank 10 Allied ships. But her greatest feat was to actually go into direct combat against 
the Australian warship, HMAS Sydney, the Australian cruiser. And she sank that cruiser uh, with over 300 deaths on board the Sydney. But in that battle in 1941, the Cormoran was badly damaged and in the end had to scuttle. Her crew were taken uh, off the ships and off the lifeboats and taken to Australia and spent the rest of the war in captivity. But those were the three great German merchant raiders of the Second World War. And they had the most extraordinary um, histories, the most extraordinary record. And they did a lot of damage, a lot of harm. And it, it took a lot of allied assets to try and track them down. But thank God for the Enigma machine and the, the breaking of Ultra, because otherwise they would have done far more significant damage. And again, their role was to attack the margins of the allied war effort and the British Empire, just as the merchant raiders of World War I had done the same. Those were the two world wars. And yet since then, there has still been a need, not necessarily for merchant raiders, but certainly for disguise and ruse and for spy trawlers. And there have been so many areas in which those vessels have appeared. I mean, you look at the Cold War when auxiliary general intelligence ships, spy trawlers of the Soviet Union, probably about 60 of them, were at the height of their operation. And they were everywhere. You know, when the Americans erected what were called the Texas Towers, those radar stations, the signals intelligence stations on the open ocean off the coast of America in international waters, they were always being pestered by Soviet spy trawlers. And after the 1961 collapse of one of those towers in a, in a storm in which 29 of the US crew were killed, there was a protocol introduced where the towers were evacuated in bad weather. And who should turn up when those towers had been evacuated? Yes, it was the Soviet spy trawlers. And they used to put crew on board to ransack and raid and steal US secrets. So that became a real problem. The US Coast Guard had to patrol quite vigorously to keep those spy trawlers at bay. And there were always incidents, you know, you could never have a NATO operation or Western allied fleets uh, doing their naval exercises without being pestered or jammed by these spy trawlers. It was a real problem uh, over the years. But occasionally the tables are turned. And it's extraordinary that in, I think it was 2017, there was a uh, former Soviet spy trawler in the Black Sea. Uh, she, was, she was an old, old vessel, but still in use. And she was ironically called Lehman, and, uh, after the Ukrainian town. And she was actually hit by a Togo-registered livestock cargo ship carrying sheep. So I mentioned uh, nautical wools and sheep's clothing. This spy trawler was actually sunk by a vessel carrying sheep. So there must be an irony somewhere in that. There have been other incidents of spy trawlers, of course, because the North Koreans and other countries use them as well. In 2001, there was an incident, I think it was called the Amami Ashima 
incident or battle or the Southwest Sea spy ship incident in which the Japanese Coast Guard gave chase to a North Korean spy ship that wouldn't stop. And thousands of machine gun rounds were exchanged and a North Korean crew loosed off um, anti-tank grenades. I mean, it wasn't sort of armed in the same way as the uh, German raider, because it was a spy ship, that German raider, the huge 540-foot cormoran of the Second World War, which incidentally had 650-millimeter guns and two 88-millimeter anti-tank guns and um, five anti-aircraft guns. No, this wasn't anything like this. This was a, a low-profile, sneaky-beaky operation by the North Koreans. And that ship was sunk, um, 15 survivors clung to a buoy, um, or what the Americans would call a buoy, and uh, but the Japanese Coast Guard were ordered away by their superiors and did not rescue those men, and two bodies were found floating um, in the water uh, later on. And that ship, that spy ship, was actually uh, raised by the Japanese in 2003 and was found to have a double hatch. It could have uh, released a speedboat. So very Bond, but that too, like the St. George in For Your Eyes Only, it sank to the bottom of the sea. And that was a Korean spy ship. So again... These ships have been used all round the place, all round the oceans. And, you know, back in the Second World War, you know, when it came to a, a sort of armed merchantmen, the, the Japanese had tried to use it, but again, with, with very little success because they actually needed their merchant ships to support their far-ranging uh, Pacific Empire. And so they, they never did much, much, much good in the same way that the North Korean spy trawlers uh, don't really seem to achieve very much. Anyway, those are really sort of spy spy trawlers. And I talked about the Allies, the West, using spy ships as well. And you can see that they, they do tend to use them. I mean, in 1967, the USS Liberty, uh, which was actually a well-marked uh, signals intelligence ship and intelligence vessel. Uh, she was sort of located off the Gaza Strip and it was Israel that attacked her um, during the Six-Day War and killed over 50 crew. The Israeli Air Force attacked with napalm and rockets and even uh, strafed the three lifeboats that were in the water. It was a terrible incident and jammed the communications from the Liberty to um, other US ships asking for help. But eventually help did come and the Israelis were driven back. But the Israelis probably attacked that ship because they knew she could pick up their radio communications and other signals intelligence uh, that showed the, that Israel was about to take over the Golan Heights. But it was a, a, a terrible incident, and it shows how things can go badly wrong, even if the ships are well marked. Anyway, this really takes me to the postscript, because we've done armed raiders, we've done merchant ships that have various nefarious roles and we've done spy trawlers 
But I want to come on in the postscript to new rules for auxiliary ships and for merchant ships and how, again, they're being turned from plowshares into swords, how they're being redirected. And you can see this with uh, Britain's new multi-role ocean surveillance ships because so far two offshore support ships from the oil and gas sector have been acquired and they are going to be converted into Royal Fleet Auxiliary multi-role ocean surveillance ships, motherships to carry remotely piloted and autonomous underwater unmanned vehicles. And these robots, these underwater drones, will be used to survey and reconnoiter uh, UK and allied cables and pipelines, gas and oil pipelines. So maybe there won't be a, a Nord Stream 2 fiasco in the future because these ships will be on patrol and they're extremely necessary. And they're quite large. I mean, they're about 320 feet. One of them is called the MV uh, Topaz Tangaroa and she's going to be renamed Royal Fleet Auxiliary Proteus and the other is called MV Island Crown and they're both currently undergoing conversion. But th this is the future. This is the future of technology and the future applications for those merchant ships. So we've gone from pirates and false flag to the civilian flagged operators of today and the new technology that is going to be applied throughout the oceans uh, to help Western security. Anyway, that's it. That's a bit of a race through all these subjects uh, in bloody bites. And I might end with one more item. And that is that on board the HMS Swallow, that ship of 1740, and Royal Navy ships that disguised themselves as civilian vessels, on board HMS Swallow of the 1740s was a woman. She was called Hannah Snell, and she disguised herself as a Marine, a Royal Marine. And it's amazing that no one in that decade actually spotted that she might have been a woman, but she did survive, and she served on board that ship loyally and well for all those years without being noticed uh, for what she was. So talk about inclusivity and talk about real disguise within a ship of the line. Anyway, that's it for today. Thanks, and see you next time on Bloody Bites. So it goes. His name is James Jackson. My name is Tom Ashton. You've been listening to Bloody Bites from Bloody Violent History. Please pass this podcast on to a friend. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.